Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Earlier this week, Indiana Department of Corrections guards turned off the power to an entire section of the Miami Correctional Facility after prisoners allegedly used outlets to start fires with combustible materials. It is unclear whether these fires were an act of protest or an accident. During the power outage, which lasted almost 24 hours, toilets did not work in the 51 affected cells. February 1st is the three-year anniversary of the uprising at the Vaughn Correctional Center in Smyrna, Delaware. 17 prisoners were indicted for the uprising, but 15 have since been acquitted, two of whom have been released. Supporters have launched a new website with updates and writings by those prisoners at Vaughn17.com. The Trump administration is suing the state of California, claiming that a new state law, AB 32, banning for-profit private prisons, unconstitutionally interferes with the federal prison and immigration detention systems. The lawsuit requests a judge to ban enforcement of AB 32, which went into effect on January 1st. The administration's lawsuit asserts that California, though free to decide it will no longer use private prisons for its state prisoners and detainees, can't dictate that decision to the federal government. AB 32 phases out existing private facilities completely by 2028. According to the Los Angeles Times, the California governor and other supporters of AB 32 argue that private prisons and detention centers, quote, create incentives for both greater incarceration rates and the mistreatment of inmates to save costs, unquote. Federal agencies house some 8,000 prisoners and detainees in California. AB 32, the administration's lawsuit asserts, would require the federal government to move inmates and detainees out of state. However, a coalition of immigrant advocacy organizations criticized the administration's lawsuit, arguing that California has the right to abandon the use of private prisons. The family and other supporters of Liddell Lee are seeking posthumous justice for Lee, who was executed in Jackson, Mississippi in 2017, after 24 years in prison. From the day he was arrested to the day he was executed, Lee maintained his innocence of the murder that he was sentenced to death for. Numerous problems exist in Lee's case. For example, no physical evidence directly connected him to the murder victim. At Lee's trial, the prosecution's own experts admitted that the results of several of its forensic tests were inconclusive. Three leading forensic science experts say the evidence used to convict Lee at trial was seriously flawed. Since Lee's execution, the Innocence Project and ACLU have continued to investigate his case, collecting new evidence and analyzing existing evidence that was overlooked when Lee was alive. However, local officials have refused to allow DNA testing and to run the fingerprints from the crime scene through the national database. The Innocence Project, ACLU, and several other entities have filed a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit on behalf of Lee's sister, Patricia Young. 
Last Thursday, January 23rd, the founder of the drug maker Insys was sentenced to five and a half years in prison for concocting a scheme to bribe doctors to prescribe this dangerous painkiller. Last year, Insys executives and employees were charged with racketeering conspiracy for funneling money to doctors to boost the sales of Subsys, a painkilling spray containing fentanyl, an opioid 50 to 100 times stronger than heroin. Like the crack epidemic before, America's epidemic of opioid addiction has fueled its prison system. In a 2017 report, the Bureau of Justice Statistics estimated that two-thirds of the offenders held in state prisons and local jails had substance abuse problems, yet only a quarter of the group received adequate drug treatment. While pharmaceutical companies are frequently fined by regulators, it is rare for executives to go to jail. This past week, seven INSYS executives and employees were found guilty of racketeering conspiracy. This week ends our conversation with Valerie Swap Cooper, the legendary cornerman who learned his craft training prisoners in the Louisiana DOC's boxing program. For this episode, we discuss how these athletes stay fit behind prison walls, the network of prison boxing, inside and outside, and what WAP has been up to since his release a few years ago. This conversation took place in December 2019 at Uppercuts, a boxing gym and barbershop in Harvey, Louisiana. The interviewer you hear is Trey Sterling, whose recent article, Combat and Incarceration, is in Commune Magazine and focuses on the history of prison boxing. That's why he brought me back. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, uh, you you can kick me off, but you kick me off like for petty stuff, right? I spoke out against why dudes stealing something from the fighters. Why y'all stealing from the fighter? Right. Why, why are you giving the new equipment to only these guys? Yes. Sharing it with the other Yes. Guys? And you swing with some, go and sell it to football player, basketball yeah. player. Yeah. And I, I spoke out against you. Next thing you know, they told the wall and I would kick your <laughs> off. And the next thing you know, I would kick off the team. Yeah. I chastised one fighter uh, uh, one time and I told him, come out the ring. You did. And, uh, he and he said, "Man, I quit." And I told him, "What? Well, get the get the phone. You think I'm gonna run behind you? You either gonna listen or you get your heads out of here." Next thing, then next thing you know, they I threatened a fighter. Yeah. I threatened a fighter. I threatened my own fighter. But I get kicked off the team. So I I was getting kicked off the team. They for, were just looking for it. I ain't never got kicked off the team. For anything other than standing up for a fight. Never. Uh, and I'll be kicked off about seven, eight times. Yeah. That's, that's a record, too, man. That's a record, by. <laughs> 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 a good belt for that. One thing I've never talked to you about that I've always been kind of curious about is, like, what does it look like to, like, maintain, like, to build muscle mass and, or to, like, stay... Just staying like physically healthy in these circumstances. How how do you you know how a fighter's recovering after a real badass whipping? You know, and like how do you you know how do you how are you healing cuts and how are you recovering from you know pulled muscles and it's you know it's already such slim pickings in there. Like you you you're struggling just to get some basic nutrients in these situations and these fighters. You know, they, they require a lot to continue doing the sport that's so physically demanding. Like, 
I mean, did y'all have a better access to medicine or did you? No, they ain't had, they, they had no, they had nothing out the ordinary mm-hmm. other than staying physically fit and eating. Sure, they eat a lot of uh, fruits and vegetables and so on and so forth like that. They, they eat what the kitchen gives them in the form of vegetables. They, they eat a lot of lean meat like sardines and smokers. Mm-hmm. And, and tuna fish, they ate uh, nothing uh, with, with the limited that they had to give in there. They ate it. If, if they had salad, they was eating it. They ate nothing extraordinary. What was that? Their disposal is 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 uh, salad and vegetables and seafood. lean meat and yeah. seafood. Without the crabs and crawfish, yeah, not lobster, but yeah, 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 not none of that. But sardine and smoked oysters and tuna fish and stuff like that, lean meat and 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 salads and so on. They 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 eat that and fruits and oranges and apples. What about what about for for recovery or for like uh, you know dealing with with bruising and like 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 if they if if they pull a muscle, we'll use. Epsi sauce, or we'll lose Epsi sauce, or we'll use Lermit or Bengay to rub them down inside for poor muscle. If if it's a uh, if it's if, if it was a cut over the eye, they go to farm it or farm it, keep them out of the rain to stuff like that. But it, it was nothing. It was nothing out the ordinary. Like other institutions try to. Say we was on some pills or yeah. steroids, <laughs> but it was nothing out the ordinary. We just trained, trained, and had a passion for what we doing. But Did we they test want, for anything? They test for piss test period. Really? Yes. Well, was, I mean, I know. I figured they test for you know some every, substances. But. Well, you 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 tell when they test you for piss, they're testing you for everything. Uh, okay. You know, you hepatitis, yeah. HIV, yeah. you know, drug related, in, yeah. anything out in your system that ain't got no been to be in that because you ain't got no been to having no access to. Right, right. So, so they, 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 they. Okay, so no one's juicing. No, 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 no juicing <laughs> up. No juicing up in that. I mean, I think it'd be hard to get a hold of anyone, but it's not hard. It's not. Cause you can get coke and dope and. Yeah. Now, why didn't they? How old you think it is to get steroids? Yeah, I know you're right. What you've been doing since you got out in 2011? Yeah, you had a few fighters get out before you. I got out before me. He won the national ringside world championship. Okay. And is that is that the one that Roy Jones Jr. spotted? Because you were saying no. you were saying Roy had been watching one of your fighters. Brad Solomon. Brad Solomon, right, right, right. On he, on ESPN. He fought Demetri Hawkins on ESPN, but no Hawkins nephew. Right, and that caught Roy's attention. Yeah, he was brought to Roy's attention of his fight style. Yeah. And uh, and how did he get in contact with you? Uh, well, uh, I was coming about to come home at that time, and and when Roy seen him, Roy asked him about his fight style, and he told Roy. You was my trainer, favorite fighter, and he trained me to do a lot of things like you. So, so it just so happened I came home, and when I came home, I came home, 
October 5th, 2011. And I had to train Solomon for WBA world title. But he had a contract dispute with some guys in Florida. And and, and the fight didn't go on because the world title fight, he, he spoke to Florida, a Russian up in uh, Ukraine. And after Brad pulled out the fight, uh, Paul Palimaji went fought and beat the guy out the belt. Mm-hmm. And Palimaji promised us a, 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 a shot at the fight, but he never at the title, but he never did. He never gave us the title fight. But, but when I came home, I was training Simon for that fight mm-hmm. to fight the Russians in the Ukraine. Oh, okay. And we went to Roy Jones training camp. And while we was up there, first time I met Roy, me and Roy clicked it, you know. I was in this camp, I was training fighters. He's some of the fighters that I met there. And he he asked me, did I have my passport? He would like for me to join training for a fight in Russia. I said, no, I, I just got out. He said, well, the only place I know you can get your passport fast is in New Orleans, where you from? I said, okay, I'll go and get it. So, make a long story short, I went, came back to New Orleans, went, got my passport, sent the ton, and I got out October the 5th. Uh-huh. I was in Russia, November the 2nd. <laughs> I wasn't even out 30 days. That's insane. Right. So, so, yeah, man, you were you were out there, and I think you showed me a picture of you in Moscow. Yeah, I was in Moscow, Siberia, Krasnodar. <laughs> Oh, no, I think you showed me a picture of Siberia. Yes. You know, with, with the, the big you, coat on. The big parka, yeah. <laughs> the big bear hug. I'll never feel sorry for a bear no more for being in a cold. They, they cool. They, yeah. they, they, they all right. They, they stay no, warm. They, they, they ain't cold. <laughs> they in the elements. Yeah. Because I was burning up in that big coat. Yeah. Yeah, my American clothes was soaking wet under that bear hug. <laughs> so, but I stay... I, I trained at Roy from the time from 2012 to he retired. And then Roy, one of the most outstanding individuals, period, general, not just as a champion, not just as a favorite fighter of mine, or a rapper. Individual, uh, rapper, body head bangers, uh, they must have forgot. But he, he, he's my dude. He, he, you know, he just a all round, straight up, straight up, real dude, you know, and, and you would think a person of that status or that riches in life and those opportunities and the level he had been, you would think this dude would be hands off type cat. Yeah. But man, he, this dude is. Like, he, he might have gotten too big or forgotten. Yes, stuff like, because you, you, you meet people like that, you know, they get a little money and a little fame, and next thing you know, don't stink, you know. Yeah. But Roy is, is his total opposite of everything his status say he is. If he is a celebrity, he don't act like a celebrity. If he a multi-millionaire, he don't act like a more. Yeah. He every, he the opposite of what he actually is. He he's a very downright dude. He's one of the most remarkable human beings that realest dude that you gonna meet in life. Period. Yeah, and I, I've always gotten the impression there's kind of a constellation of like. You know, dudes who really blew up around the same time, like uh, 
and Boosie and just guys throughout the Southeast. Yes. Like Roy and, and Boosie and, and T.I. who are like, who all stay in contact with each other and, and everyone's supporting each other's efforts and, you know. I hit, I, I, I mean, I hit the opportunity I had to be in all three of them company. I, I enjoyed being in all three of them company. I enjoyed being in uh, T.I. company. I, I think he's a real brother. I think he's a brother that had had something to say, and he 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 got he lived by what he believed. I think Boosie and he was, people misunderstand Boosie, yeah. but Boosie is one of the realest dudes that you gonna ever meet. If yeah. he oh, yeah. if he if he taking it until you like you respect you, you you that's that's Boosie. Yeah. You know, uh, well, people, I, people he ain't got a bad name by. Established quota by the system, they gave him a bad name, but he actually, you know, a fun, real dude. Okay, so yeah, you worked with Roy, and I only know that you linked up with those other guys because of the documentary that you worked on, uh, which hasn't been released yet, but will hopefully uh, soon but yeah T.I. Is, narrates it and uh, there's features from a lot of other folks yeah you know, I met a lot of life. folks as a result of my life story mm-hmm. 50 Cent Holyfield Mike Tyson oh yeah Holyfield comes through here sometimes well he ain't come out uh, when I was in, in Roy over Roy's gym I had been in the company all these cats all these cats had most of them I had the privilege to meet personally and know personally, and our relationship is 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 solid. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's it's bigger than you know just meeting up on a celebrity. We don't meet up on a celebrity status. I don't want no autograph. Yeah. When I meet these dudes, I don't want no autograph. You know, you know I want to talk about life situations. It means more to me just to have a, a friendly vibe with any one of them. Than any other, than anything. Raw my for life, mm-hmm. you know. So, so it's 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 it just one of them things that when you put you when you put out and you meet cats like that, so you be like, wow, I see them on TV, I see them on this, I see them on that, and I would have never know he real down to earth. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? That's 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 the the the. Uh, that's the important that I place on it that I got to know them personally mm-hmm. rather than as a as a celebrity, celebrity. Or, yeah no being that don't, yeah. we don't we don't play the celebrity thing if y'all can hear a jump rope uh, I don't know if the mic's picking it up but the next room over we got Ariel Davis who's a flop's latest trainee what Ariel and she's she's killing it. She just joined uh, Team Haiti and uh, won the Golden Gloves, National Golden Gloves, a few months ago. Won the Sugar Sugar Gert, Sugar Bird, Sugar Bird, in uh, Orlando. Uh, All female classic. She won the uh, Southern Boxing Female Fighter of the Year. She's Miss, cleaning up. Miss Louisiana Boxing. I met her when she was first starting and. She, she was just doing it to take a break 
as as she Close put it, three. just taking a break from basketball. And here, yeah. two years later, she's cleaning up. Yeah, she pretty much she she uh, she had an option whether she won't fight for Team USA, yeah. a Team Haiti. Her grandfather, growing up, her grandfather, she respect her grandfather. Her grandfather is from Haiti. You know she an American citizen. Her grandfather, the first and second generation, is from Haiti. She could have went represent Team USA, but on honor and respect for her grandfather and the people of Haiti, who faced a lot of poverty and devastation and lack of hope, she decided to represent Haiti to to her heritage. Yeah, Haiti is her heritage for her grandfather, and she decided to fight in the 2020 Olympics for the Haiti people and her grandfather. Yeah. To pay homage to her grandfather. It's awesome. I'm, I'm very excited to see her. In her first fight going to be in the Dominican Republic. Then she fight on Valentine weekend in Atlanta, the all-female class. I think that's as good a place as any to wrap it up. Yeah. Yeah, man. Thanks for doing the interview with me. Yeah, man. Anytime. You know I got you, bro. Thanks so much to Trey and WAP for sharing their conversation. Make sure you check out the first two episodes with WAP on our website, wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. We end this episode with another piece recorded on the inside from Muti Ajamu Seiburu. He's currently serving life without parole in a Pennsylvania state prison. He was sentenced as a teenager and maintains his innocence. We've shared some other pieces by him, and now he's recorded this one called White Supremacy Coded into America's Court System. Here he is. White supremacy coded into America's court system. The myth of white supremacy is codified in the language of the court, interwoven throughout all the basic and complex concepts, words, maxims, and sentences, the conscious and unconscious daily dialogue of its offices, an illegitimate concept cloaked in human familiarity, thereby giving it a semblance of legitimacy. From the least to the most accomplished agent of the court, they help defend, apologize for, and maintain white supremacy by euphemism and jargon, which enable its terms and phrases to hide safely in broad daylight of the collective American vocabulary. Two examples are the words racism and discrimination. The word racism is a euphemism for white supremacy, used to avoid actually identifying white people and the evil system that they set up to terrorize Africans and our children. The root word race intentionally confuses the reader or listener about who and what is being discussed. That is, who is doing what to who. By the term white supremacy clearly identifies the culprit and the crime. It removes all doubt about who the criminal is and implicitly who the victims of these crimes are. The word discrimination is jargon for the criminal behavior and practices of some white people towards all other people of color. However, the word within the court system is presented like the word racism to hide the systemic immoral criminality of some whites as if it is neutral or universal. Discrimination, that is criminal behavior, has a beginning in this country and so it is not universal but rather endemic to its originators. The latter revision of white people's history in this country by white writers, reporters, clergy, orators, obscure the origin of this violent behavior and practice 
and projected it onto the black and brown victims. The current frontline defenders of this white supremacist way are attorneys. None are bigger than the so-called defense attorneys. The pivotal role these willful double agents play within the accuser's plant, many have heard me say, is invaluable in protecting and rationalizing the status quo, white supremacy. Not racism, but rather raw, unapologetic white supremacy. Regardless of how well it is cloaked, it cannot be hidden from the melanin gaze. Once you acquire the conscious lens of what I call cultural sense, i.e. reason derived from comprehension and exercise of original African high culture, individual lawyers and legal organizations are equal in their sellout role to the daily rights of black and brown people, particularly those of children. Leading the charge locally, there's the Juvenile Law Center, Defenders Association of Philadelphia, Youth Sentencing Reentry Project, both law schools of the University Temple and Penn, etc. While the newer organizations are setting up cottage industry off of the black and brown backs, the older entities provide steady misleadership, grooming for the novice upstarts, and reliable photo op fodder for the media control of this false narrative. Nationally, the NAACP Legal Education and Defense Fund and the internationally, the Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International provide the same loyalty to the status quo, but they are much more polished at what our First Nation cousins call pale-faced speaking with forked tongue. Ironically, in Howard University Journal, a law professor wrote an article entitled, quote, Speaking Truth to Memory, Lawyers and Resistance to End White Supremacy, where she was attempting to cast lawyers' version of the good cop, bad cop, but instead inadvertently divulged the treasonous brand of defense attorney I previously mentioned. When she referred to an attorney, Milo Moody, who had defended the Scottsboro boys in their high-profile white case, his defense is what I see in Philly routinely. It is called closet prosecution. It's where the defense attorney not only works in lockstep with the prosecutor to get the accused convicted, especially when the accused is a child, but once the conviction is acquired, the closet prosecutor continues to work with the prosecutor to maintain the conviction. Some of the routine things these closet prosecutors do is even shocking to those of us who have witnessed it repeatedly for decades. It never gets old. The common denominator in each one of these cases is the casual, calm, automatic pilot practice of white supremacy. This encoded language forces media types, when they report or write on the court system, they must effortlessly utter white supremacist tropes as matter-of-fact, as if the journalist is doing a favor for or helping the victims of white supremacy. These presumptive articulations carry a false sense of objectivity, thus legitimate. In order to report on the court, the writer must regurgitate a well-camouflaged and complete lexicon that not only perpetuates the systemic, intricate scaffolding of sensitized hate that some whites have for richly melanated skin, and in so doing, it refurbishes and expands its toxicity on a daily basis. This means the reporter thinks that she or he is doing good, but in fact doing the opposite. The reporter is not reporting on the court, as is often said, but rather they are dissecting the results reached by a joint contribution of each court agent, which always legitimizes the court. There is never reporting on the illegitimacy of the court because it is founded on the myth 
of black and brown inferiority and white superiority. The only antidote to this poison is to critically deconstruct every brick in the structure. Critically analyze it and yourself on how because of your complicit living and selective amnesia, you have aided the enemy of humanity, the myth of white supremacy. In the bowels of America's terror dome, I am Muti Ajumun Seburu, a child from Pennsylvania's other death row, death by incarceration, engineered by the city of Philadelphia. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.